Welcome to the PMPA Speaking of Precision podcast, featuring your hosts, Carly Kistler-Miller and Miles Free. Hello, I'm Miles Free, and welcome to PMPA's Speaking of Precision Monday with Miles podcast. Carly Kistler-Miller has joined me today, and we are going to discuss whether difficulty in machining is it really a shop problem. Really a shop problem, uh, duh, Miles. The shop is where they do the machining, right? Well, it certainly is the scene of the crime, Carly, but it's not the only scene where the crime takes place. All right, I'm curious. If not the shop, where else could it be? Where or when are great places to start? Where, perhaps with our customers? When, during our contract review, For example, it could be the choice of material specified itself. Machining difficult materials is a challenge that our shops are increasingly facing these days as the free machining materials that we were used to are not being selected for the higher performance, higher engineered, higher tech applications that our shops are quoting today. Aha! So when the problem on the shop floor is a result of the change to these more difficult to machine materials, it might not actually be the fault of anyone in operations. Exactly. The root problem may have been failing to recognize the challenges that material would give us back during contract review. So before even trying to troubleshoot, we need to determine if we have the organizational depth to understand that the issue, while it is up to the folks in the shop to solve, may in fact be the result of a compounding of errors and lack of knowledge or understanding from the folks in the office that took the order. Organizational capability, that is a great point of view, and it's consistent with the philosophy of don't blame the performer, right? So. Once we're past this, then what? We still have material giving people in operations and the sales and the customer fits. Well, that's exactly what's going on. So what do we do afterwards? I ask a couple of appreciative questions. The first question that I like to ask was, was the quote itself right? Okay, today you really have a one-track mind about contract review. Well, that is where and when it all starts. For example, when the engineers made the estimate, I'm going to give them credit. They used the best factors available. That doesn't mean they're the correct factors, just that they were the best available at the time of quote. Here's an example. For some materials, I'm a carbon and alloy steel guy, the unit horsepower values needed to machine are a function of both the feed rate and the Brunel hardness. At a five thousandths inch per rev of feed, alloy steels typically require 0.86 of a horsepower per cubic inch of removal per minute. At 160 Brunel, they need over a horse 1.02 horsepower per cubic inch of removal per minute. And at 240 Brunel, that horsepower per cubic inch per minute figure jumps to 1.25. Okay, so the factors change. They change based on Brunel hardness. Yes, for carbon and alloy steels. Uh-huh. However, oh, our gosh. shops are increasingly seeing austenitic stainless steels, nickel grades, 
different, more complex alloys, and hardness no longer provides that reliable rule of thumb or means of estimating either the speed or the horsepower required. <laughs> gotcha. Okay, so I see that that could lead someone down the wrong path. I mean, while it may have been the best available estimate, that does not mean that it's accurate or correct, especially if it was using incorrect assumptions from limited experience with other materials. Exactly right. That's, that's a great summary. Okay, next question. Is it tooled right? What about the work holding? Is it on the right machine? In other words, is it the right process? I seem to recall three questions about problem solving we covered in MBA quality class. Is there a process? Is it effective? And is it followed? And you have just demonstrated to our podcast audience why you were a top student. Aww. Those are the three crucial questions to ask when something blows up. And note, none of them start with who. Mm, that's a good point. So the first step for us is for us to answer exactly what do we mean by machinability? My definition of machinability, and probably that of most shop owners, is that machinability is the ability of the material to travel through the shop, starting as bars, ending as parts, with the least amount of aggravation and trouble and downtime to the machine operator. I am very proud of my production bias. I can understand that. And what does it have to do with the right tools and machine? Well, Carly, the folks in the office are often measured to a different standard. Often that standard is created by accountants and involves the constant reduction in the price paid for tools and supplies purchased for use in the shop. Um, Miles, remember we might have some accounting folks in our podcast audience. I know, but a lot of us from production have scars because of cost savings ideas imposed on us by the cost-cutting department. Seriously, we understand nobody wants to overpay for tools and supplies. But we can also see that the pressure to reduce costs could also be a contributing factor to the failure of the shop to get the number of parts produced because of lower efficiencies, increased downtime for tool replacement, or even putting the job on the wrong machine. Many buyers or purchasing agents are measured and incentivized by this standard, lowest price that meets the specification. If it meets my spec and costs less, that's what they're going to get to work with. What I am asking is, even if we can make it on a cheaper machine, does that mean we really make more money? Oh, this is a take on your highest and best use thinking. It should be on the machine best suited for the demands to make it. Same with tools, not just the cheapest. That's right. Cheapest might be looking at one set of costs and minimizing those, but ignoring other costs that it increases, such as the costs in, in implied by unneeded downtime or lower efficiency or higher labor as a result. Okay, got it. What's next? Was the material that was purchased right for your process? I travel across North America giving presentations about metallurgy for machinists. I focus on steel, 
but I don't spend a lot of time talking about ferrite or perlite or martensite or other technical terms. What I try to share is an understanding of how to characterize material when being cut or cold worked as either ductile or brittle when it, in its behavior. What is the chip supposed to be like? And then I discuss all of the process steps in the material's history from original melt, casting, hot rolling, cold finishing, and processing that can tip the material into behaving in a more brittle or ductile fashion to work better in our process and what that means for machinability in those processes. But haven't we really lost a lot of options in how we get our steel with, between the tariffs and the plant shutdowns and the supply chain delays? Everyone I spoke with at our Cleveland events a couple of weeks ago, they had a number of horror stories to share about long lead times, no quotes, having to find substitutes. Yes, for sure. We have lost options in North America to source bar steels from basic oxygen process shops. There can be significant differences between the remaining electric furnace shops and the way that they provide the steel for their bars. There can be chemical differences at the residual element level between all other melt shops, as well as differences in nitrogen levels, differences in deoxidation practice, bloom or billet size, and the differences in hot work during hot rolling and reduction ratios. Cold finishers processes can differ in cold working practices, take draft, it could be light, standard, or heavy, and in how they straighten the bars. That can influence a material's mechanical properties and behavior while being machined. Sorry to, to run on, but I just had one of these show up in my inbox this week. The difference was the fourth batch of steel from the same supplier of the exact same item. It turns out that last production batch was a very light draft because they couldn't get the normal starting size and the material that was provided happened to be on the bottom of the tolerance as well. Basically, the amount of cold work was only one-third of that expected and less than one-tenth of that that they normally would have had using standard or heavier draft material. All right, let me see if I've got this. It's not necessarily better or worse, just different. Yep. Okay, so when the material today behaves differently than the material from a different batched machine previously, who knows what the implicit process differences might be in the new batch that can explain the difference response to your machining method. Yep. Even if the material came from the same vendor, such as a service center, who knows if it was produced to an identical process path as the earlier batch. That's right. Okay, so it could have been a different melt shop, billet size, scrap practice, or cold finisher? Was it also produced from straight bar or coiled hot roll? Same or different draft and straightening method? <laughs> That's right. You took great mental notes on our shop's mastery tours. Thank you. You've named quite a few of the possible differences. Our mastery program attendees likely got that same information from their visits. This is a great summary. All of those things could make a difference. The problem exists in the shop, but the root cause may be institutional, and that is what is causing the shop issue. It's the shop's problem to solve, but it's not a result of shop behaviors. 
I like that. The people in the shop have to solve the production problem and that each new batch of, in quotes, difficult material presents them, which does not mean that they caused the problem. And it certainly does not make the shop the problem, to bring it back to what you were saying at the beginning. Yep. So if we can look honestly at the systems of procurement and estimating and creating shop process layouts, we can find plenty of opportunity to improve what we know. And by doing that, we just might be able to reduce the downtime and tool failures in the shop that delay, in quotes, the ability of the material to travel through the shop, starting as bars, ending as parts, with the least amount of aggravation and trouble to the machine operator, unquote. Which is, after all, the definition of machinability that matters to the enterprise and that we started this podcast off with. Ta-da! That wraps up our podcast on, Is Machining Difficulty Really the Shop's Problem? Thank you for joining us. For additional information, please visit pmpa.org, where you can also search for articles, webinars, other podcasts, and other resources. Yes, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, because you don't want to miss one. Harry Amy doesn't. He listens every time. On his walks. On his walks. Hi, Harry. And if you aren't already taking advantage of PMPA membership, be sure to check out pmpa.org to see all we have to offer. And why is a PMPA membership important, Carly? Because Because we we are are better better together. together. Don't forget to join us next Monday on Speaking of Precision, Monday with Mike.